Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Rio Can Real Estate Investment Trust's fourth quarter and year-end 2020 conference call. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. After management's presentation, there will be a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. I would now like to hand the conference over to Jennifer Seuss, Senior Vice President and General Counsel. You may begin. Thank you. Thank you, and good morning, everyone. I am Jennifer Seuss. Senior Vice President, General Counsel, and Corporate Secretary for RioCan. Before we begin, I would like to draw your attention to the presentation materials that we will refer to in today's call, which were posted together with the MDNA and financials on RioCan's website earlier this morning. Before turning the call over to Jonathan, I am required to read the following cautionary statement. In talking about our financial and operating performance, and in responding to your questions, we may make forward-looking statements, including statements concerning RioCan's objectives, its strategies to achieve those objectives, as well as statements with respect to management's beliefs, plans, estimates, and intentions, and similar statements concerning anticipated future events, results, circumstances, performance, or expectations that are not historical facts. These statements are based on our current estimates and assumptions and are subject to risks and uncertainties that could cause our actual results to differ materially from the conclusions in these forward-looking statements. In discussing our financial and operating performance, and in responding to your questions, we will also be referencing certain financial measures that are not generally accepted accounting principal measures, GAAP, under IFRS. These measures do not have any standardized definition prescribed by IFRS and are therefore unlikely to be comparable to similar measures presented by other reporting issuers. Non-GAAP measures should not be considered as alternatives to net earnings or comparable metrics determined in accordance with IFRS as indicators of RioCan's performance, liquidity, cash flows, and profitability. RioCan's management uses these measures to aid in assessing the trust's underlying core performance and provides these additional measures so that investors may do the same. Additional information on the material risks that could impact our actual results and the estimates and assumptions we applied in making these forward-looking statements, together with details on our use of non-GAAP financial measures, can be found in the financial statements for the period ended December 31, 2020, and management's discussion and analysis related thereto as applicable, together with RioCan's most recent annual information form that are all available on our website and at www.cdark.com. Thank you, Jennifer, and thanks for joining us today. I'm pleased to be here and uh, be surrounded virtually by our great senior management team at RioCan, and I'm happy to provide an update on our fourth quarter operational highlights as well as our 2020 results. I'm going to focus today on what will continue to drive stronger FFO, namely our underlying operating performance, our increased focus on mixed-use developments, and the strength of our tenants who are largely classified as strong or stable. I'll also focus on how we continue to upgrade our portfolio through dispositions and tenant mix evolution so that we will continuously reduce our exposure to non-essential businesses. But before doing that, it's critical to acknowledge the challenges that the real estate industry and our business faced in 2020. I mean, the impacts of COVID-19, they tested our team and our portfolio, and we consistently demonstrated strength, resiliency, and the ability to mitigate the impacts. We're pleased to report that RioCan ended the year with record liquidity and that we achieved our FFO per unit guidance of $1.60. We made the responsible decision to reduce our distributions effective in January of this year, which does enhance our financial flexibility and allows us to advance our goals and to absorb the impact this pandemic has on our business. While we continue to uh, to face the pandemic and an uneven road to economic recovery, I've got total confidence that RioCan's team is well positioned to unlock the value that's embedded in our incredible portfolio. So now let's focus on the fourth quarter operating results. The second wave of the pandemic in the fourth quarter resulted in in restrictive measures, including the closure of non-essential businesses in a number of provinces. In fact, 75% of our tenants remained open and operating as of December 31st. But in spite of this, 
we collected 94.2% of our total fourth quarter rents and just shy of 92%, 91.7% of our January bill gross rents as of February 10th, and we're not done yet. Throughout this crisis, we've been responsible, protective, and forward-looking by balancing our tenants' needs with the well-being of our unit holders. When SECRA launched in the second quarter of 2020, we actively participated on behalf of around 1,800 1, qualifying tenant locations and another 950 tenant locations in the third quarter. Over the six-month SECRA period, Rio Can abated approximately $14.4 million in gross rents. We continue to work with tenants whose businesses have been affected by the pandemic. The SERS program replaced SECRA in the fourth quarter and SERS funding, which is provided directly to tenants without the requirement of landlord rent abatement, is in effect until June of 2021. Now, we view SERS as a positive initiative that will provide a lot of short-term relief for businesses that are in need. To provide further support, RioCan has established an ambassador program to assist our tenants with the online SERS application process. We continue to use our expertise to ensure that tenants are applying for any available government subsidies. The bottom line remains the same as we reported in Q2 and Q3. Every dollar matters to us. We're using our resources, energy, and a thoughtful strategic approach to maximize rent collection. To the extent that we need to make some concessions, we negotiate lease amendments that will benefit the trust over the long term, such as redevelopment rights that will support our ability to unlock so much future value. Now, as anticipated, same property NOI growth continued to be impacted. We ended the quarter at minus 7.9%, stronger than the previous quarter, but obviously very far from our historic norms, which we intend to return to. Now, while we can't predict the length and extent of the mandated closures, the strength of our tenant base insulates RioCan's income from temporary disruptions. In fact, 79% of our tenants we classify as strong or stable. These are primarily grocery, pharmacy, liquor, essential services, and value retailers that have strong covenants and have demonstrated the, uh, resilience in volatile economic cycles. Their stability is highlighted by RioCan's collection of over 98% of the total gross rent that was billed to these tenants in the fourth quarter. The remaining 21% of our tenants, well, we classify them as potentially vulnerable. Now, most of these tenants are going to survive, and we've collected more than 80% of their rent. Some of these tenants, such as restaurants and gyms, while they're vulnerable in the face of COVID, well, in our minds, they make up a very important part of the retail landscape, and we think they will do just fine in the future. These are the kinds of uses that are poised to prosper when commercial exuberance rebounds after months of suffocation. Now, I'm not going to downplay the volatility in the industry, but I want to be clear that to date, the relative impact on RioCan's revenue is manageable, and we're positioned to see significant improvement as the impacts of COVID start to dissipate. Now, in regards to leasing, in spite of the pandemic, our fourth quarter leasing, renewal, and retention results were strong and very much in line with our historic pre-pandemic results, thanks to the good and very hard work of our team here at RioCan. Our committed occupancy ended the year at 95.7%. Our leasing team completed 359,000 square feet of new leasing and renewed 1.2 million square feet during the quarter. We achieved a, we achieved a blended leasing spread of 3.8% for the quarter and 5% for the year. New leasing spreads for major market properties was 8.3% for the year. Our renewal and new leasing spreads demonstrate that there's still a healthy upside between our average portfolio and the market rents. Our retention was 85.8% for the quarter and 86.7% for the year. An average net rent per square foot for new leases was just under $44 for the quarter and just over $32 for the year, impressively above the trust's portfolio average rent of $19.80 per square foot. So I'm going to turn to residential. We collected over 98% of residential rent in the fourth quarter, which is really a testament to the desirability and strength of RioCan Living's offerings. Our residential rental portfolio continues to grow and currently has more than 1,200 units in four buildings, uh, East Central and Pivot in Toronto, Frontier in Ottawa, and Brio in Calgary. The total NOI from our residential rental operations was $8.2 million for the year, which was up $5.8 million from 2019. 
We will see this number continue to increase as new projects are completed throughout the course of this year. As of February 10th, Frontier and East Central were 97.8 and 86.3% leased, respectively. First occupancy of Pivot's 361 units took place in December of 2020. Now, it's understandable that the pandemic has, has really temporarily affected leasing at East Central and Pivot. It's challenging to lease space with virtual tourists. And we also can't ignore the short-term pressures in the multi-res rental space. However, we are confident that all Rio Can living offerings will thrive in the long term, not only because we have well-positioned properties, but also because enhanced immigration and, and a resurgence in economic activity should lend to stronger market dynamics going forward. In terms of developments, we have always prudently balanced and adjusted our construction plans in the face of COVID-19. Now that said, we're pleased to report that the pandemic didn't have a material impact on the pace of our most significant construction projects. We continue to look ahead to ensure continuous growth through sustainable development pipelines. As we complete developments, we break ground on new ones, we achieve zoning on others, and initiate the zoning approval process on still more. This pipeline translates into lucrative opportunities. A real, it's a virtuous cycle that was well demonstrated throughout 2020. We validated how profitable our rezone land is by selling interest in several GTA and Ottawa properties at very strong pricing. We have so many of these projects that will take us well into our future. They include Laird and Eglinton here in Toronto, Shoppers World Brampton up in Brampton, and Rio Can Hall in downtown Toronto. And this is just to name a few of so many that we have in our tremendous pipeline. We saw value creation through the successful closing of the sale of 50% non-managing interest in East Central at attractive capitalization rates and a value far above our cost. Further supporting the long-term strategic importance and NAV growth potential of our development pipeline and residential rental business. We also completed approximately 530,000 square feet of new development GLA. This included developments such as 5th and 3rd in Calgary and Winfield's Farm in Oshawa, which continues to see great growth. In addition to the completed projects I just referenced, we've got more than 14, sorry, 1,400 residential rental units currently under construction. And this is between six projects and estimate that we'll have an additional 1,500 or over 1,500 residential rental units in different phases of development by 2022. We've got a 50% interest in three condo or townhouse projects at various phases of pre-sale and construction. This includes 11YV condos in Yorkville and UC Uptowns and a UC Tower condominium projects at Winfield Farm in Oshawa. I'm proud to say that these projects include 1,242 units and were 98% pre-sold with deposits paid in full. And what should also be noted is that the proceeds from our condo sales provide an alternative source of revenue and an important bridge of FFO that will supplement our productive core commercial portfolio going forward. Moving to the well, our iconic mixed-use community in Toronto's downtown west, the office tower, if you haven't seen it, has reached its final 36th story and is expected to be topped off next month. The project is on track for the initial office tenants to take possession later on this year and retail leasing is advancing well. We intend to continuously use our vast pipeline of air rights and will seek out partners to validate value, reduce our overall development exposure, and equally important, to get paid for our deep and experienced development platform through equitable fee structures. We're going to use this strategy not only in residential rental projects, but in condo projects as well. Subsequent to quarter end, RioCam made its final capital contribution to the HBC joint venture, which brings our ownership interest in this well-positioned portfolio of properties to 20%. The properties in which we've increased our interest include downtown Vancouver, Montreal, Ottawa, Calgary, as well as destination shopping centers such as Yorkdale and Square One. Our position in these properties is consistent with our strategy towards dominant, well-located urban assets, and we're going to work with our partner to explore potential uses for these properties, be they existing retail uses or dynamic mixed-use concepts. We've also reached an arrangement with HBC to clear up all rental arrears that had accrued over the course of 2020. It's important to highlight that while our focus is obviously on managing our business and tapping into growth opportunities, our commitment to sustainable growth has not in any way diminished throughout the course of this pandemic. RioCan continues to lead the real estate industry on ESG, 
with the achievement of a five-star rating from Gresby, or Gres, never know how to pronounce it, for our ESG performance and sustainability best practices. RioCan is also ranked first amongst Canadian peers in the Gres public disclosure assessment. And in terms of our culture, maintaining a connected and engaged team has been critical during these challenging times. And we're proud to be named one of Greater Toronto's top employers, and we achieved the highest employee engagement score in RioCan's history. Our 2020 employee engagement survey results exceeded the industry benchmark for overall engagement by 10 points. We're committed to investing in our corporate culture and the development of our expert talent. We'll continue to support excellence and empower our people to drive our collective success. RioCan's history is a story of successful transition. This won't stop as we seek to drive sustainable, profitable growth in 2021. Looking ahead, we will continue to reshape our tenant base to focus more than ever on resilience, sustainable growth, and value creation. We've got the team, the locations, and the balance sheet. We have the drive, the expertise, and relationships to weather this storm, and as always, adapt and thrive. And we are poised to advance our business as COVID and its impact become less relevant, which will, mark my words, happen soon. And before I close out, I want to express my gratitude to Ed, the RioCan Board of Trustees, the team here at RioCan, and of course, you are unit holders for your confidence in me as RioCan's next Chief Executive Officer, effective April 1st, 2021. I'm really excited and really privileged to lead RioCan through this complex period in their history and into our next phase of remarkable growth. And with that, I will turn it over to my colleague, Chi Tang, for her CFO report. Thank you, Jonathan. And good morning, everyone. As Jonathan noted, RioCan reported SFO per unit of $0.39 cents for the fourth quarter and $1.60 for the year, in line with our guidance. Our $1.60 FFO per unit for the year was net of a $42.5 million pandemic-related provision for rent abatements and bad debt which represented 5.2% of our build gross rents from Q2 to Q4. Our net contract receivable was about 44 million as of the year end, which is expected to be collected in due course. Despite the challenging environment under the pandemic, including a much less active transaction market, we continue to service value of our portfolio and closed 193 million of dispositions during 2020. Of those, 66 million were income-producing assets with a weighted average capitalization rate of 6.31% based on in-place NOI, and 127 million were development properties with no in-place NOI. In addition, as of February 10, 2021, we have closed or entered into firm or conditional agreements to dispose 100% or partial interest in a number of properties for total sales proceeds about 290 million. This included 151 million for the sale of a 50% non-managing interest in eCentral and commercial component of ePlace at 3.5% and 4.5% capitalization rate, respectively, based on stabilized NOI, which was closed in mid-January 2021. Overall, since the beginning of 2020, we have closed or entered into firm and conditional deals totaling $483 million. This included about 241 million of income-producing properties with a weighted capitalization rate about 5.5% based on in-place NOI. Our ongoing disposition program not only realizes the value inherent in our development pipeline, but also enables us to fund mixed-use development, mitigate risk, share costs, earn additional fee income, and attract new partners or strengthen relationships with the existing partners. 
our reduced distribution payout will provide about 152 million of additional cash flow annually, which will also serve to fund development projects as well as other value-added initiatives such as debt repayment and unit buybacks through our NCIB program. We remain committed to our development program and unlocking the significant value inherent in our portfolio. Residential development accounts for about 83% or about 35 million square feet of our 42 million square feet of development pipeline. Our residential projects will serve to address the growing demand for housing as Canada's population grows, particularly when the government resumes its immigration plans. As announced in October 2020, the Government of Canada plans to welcome an average 411,000 new immigrants per year over the next three years. The majority of the new Canadians will make their homes in one of Canada's six major cities, where all of our mixed-use residential developments are located. In fact, typically, more than 30% new Canadians or over 100,000 a year called Toronto Home, where 74% of our projects are located, often in close proximity to major transit lines. Looking ahead to 2021, we estimate development spending to be in the 500 million range, net of projected cost recoveries and proceeds from air ride sales. This spending estimate includes about 400 million for properties under development and approximately 100 million for the residential inventory project, which are condominium or townhouse project. In addition to meeting market demand for home ownership, condominium or townhouse projects enable us to accelerate capital recycling to further fund our development program. 2021 development expenditures will allow us to develop, deliver a significant portion of our flagship development, the well, and complete other mixed-use developments such as Liso on DuPont Street and Strata on College Street, both in Toronto, as well as the second phase of our Gloucester project, Latitude in Ottawa. With these completions in 2021, the staggered nature of our pipeline and cost sharing with the existing and future partners will allow us to lower our annual development spending in 2022 and beyond. In general, we expect to keep our total IFRS value of properties under development and residential inventory on consolidated balance sheet as of a percentage of consolidated gross book value of assets at about 10% or lower, despite the 15% limit submitted under our various credit facilities. As of the year end, this matrix was 10.3%. Now let me turn your attention to our balance sheet matrix. We close the year with record liquidity at 1.6 billion in the form of cash and cash equivalents and undrawn committed revolving lines of credit and other credit facilities. This was partly as a result of the 500 million green bond we issued in December 2020. This green bond effectively refinanced our 550 million debenture maturities in 2021. Subsequent to the year end, we prepaid our 250 million December 2021 debenture maturity in full at a total redemption price of 256 million plus accrued interest. We will repay the 300 million debenture due in April 2021 in due course. Out of our total 380 million mortgage maturities in 2021, about 229 million have already been repaid, refinanced, or have refinancing commitments in place as of February 10, 2021. Overall, we expect to continue to maintain our strong liquidity in 2021. 
Further, we continue to have a large unencumbered assets pool of 8.7 billion on proportionate share basis, which generated about 59% of our annualized NOI and provided 2.15 times coverage for our unsecured debt as of the year end. This unencumbered asset pool will offer additional flexibility as we manage our liquidity during the year while maintaining compliance with various debt covenants. Our debt to adjust the EBITDA matrix was 9.47 times and leverage was 45% as of the year end. The increase in the two matrix year over year were driven by the impact of pandemic on property operations and valuations over the three quarters in 2020 and the timing of development spending and completions. We wrote down our investment properties by about 527 million or 3.7% during the year. While we expect the two debt matrix to increase marginally in the near term, given the impact of the pandemic on a 12-month trading basis, we maintain our long-term goal of keeping our leverage and debt-to-adjust EBITDA within the target range of 42% or lower and around eight times, respectively. Our cost of debt continue to decline with the weighted average effective interest of 3.2% on proportionate share basis, which compared to almost 3.5% as of last year end. Our floating interest exposure decreased to 1.9% as of the year end from the 6.4% as of last year end, which was partly due to timing of the December 2020 green bond issue and no utilization on the floating revolver. We remain committed to a consistent and disciplined approach to managing our balance sheet and capital structure to maintain strong liquidity, financial flexibility, and to position us well to navigate through crisis and invest in creative initiatives to create value for the long term. With that, I'd like to turn the call over to Ed for his closing remarks. Uh, Thank you, Chi. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Jennifer. And they certainly are closing remarks for me. Um, Because as most of you know, uh, this will be my last conference call as CEO of RECAN. it's, it's certainly an unusual one. I can't see the rest of the uh, RECAN executive team uh, or see when they roll their eyes during uh, part of my uh, uh, remarks. Uh, so that's probably good. On April 1st, I'll be passing the CEO baton to uh, Jonathan Gitlin and move to a new role as non-executive chairman. In that seat, as well as working with our board, of course, I will be available to Jonathan for any advice he wants Uh, or just to bounce around some of the dynamic new ideas and strategies that I have no doubt he will bring to the job. Astonishingly enough, this is my 108th quarterly report. Thank you to everyone for putting up with me for 27 years. It's certainly a long time and lots of excitement, new initiatives, crises, and setbacks over those many years. I won't reminisce today, or at least not much, You'll have to come to a post-COVID party for that. But it's remarkable when I look back and recall that the first two two or three years of investor meetings and calls, and of course then they were all in person, were mostly taken up with explaining what a REIT was and why it was a good investment, which it was. And today it's even better, quite frankly, with the way the market has reacted. Uh, as a side benefit to everything I did for, uh, or, or we did, uh, in creating this, uh, helping to create this industry, uh, we actually created a lot of jobs for real estate analysts. So uh, some of you here might keep that in mind when you write your reports. I generally don't have regrets, but simply move on to the next decision. I do regret, however, that we found it appropriate to reduce our distribution as of January 1st, 2021. It took a once-in-a-century pandemic, arriving right in the middle of an expansive development program, to lead us to this difficult decision. But it was the correct one, 
freeing up over $150 million in cash and equity, which, together with our other initiatives, will enable us to keep our balance sheet extremely strong while continuing to build value and cash flow through our development efforts. The stability of our cash flow is indicated by the numbers for 2020, including the metric that became so important early last year, rent collection, are clear. Recan's portfolio was created over the last 27 years, curated particularly uh, over the last decade, and its strength, resilience, and future potential are hopefully becoming apparent to all. It is a portfolio that was partly acquired and partly developed, and in my opinion, could not be duplicated today. Besides the stability it has demonstrated, we are only, we are only at the beginning of surfacing the inherent value it contains, maybe in the second inning. We took a conservative approach to valuations in 2020, writing our portfolio down by 527 million or 3.7% as G mentioned. But whatever my personal opinion of our being the most conservative amongst our peers is, it certainly created more runway for surfing, surfacing and increasing value over the ensuing time. In addition to the portfolio itself, the quality and experience of Reacan's team also differentiates us and will enable us to achieve the value and cash flow growth that I am confident are coming. No point in complaining about our unit price, but I will simply point out that not only is it well below our beaten up NAV, a uh, huge discount, uh, probably the biggest it's ever been, but that NAV reflects none of the great things that are being created, nor much of the, uh, most of the development pipeline that we've already zoned, not just thought about or applied for. I mentioned earlier that I rarely have regrets, but while it is the right time for me to transition to chair, I do regret that I will be in a watching role as opposed to a doing one while Jonathan and his team create enormous value and new cash flows for our unit holders over the next few years. Mind you, as a significant unit holder myself and as non-executive chair, I will certainly be cheering them on and watching with pleasure. Uh, that's it for my remarks. I'd like to turn it back to Melissa uh, for any questions that anybody has. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have a question at this time, please press the star, then the one key on your touchtone phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. One moment for our questions. Our first question comes from the line of Mark Rothschild from Canaccord. Your line is open. Thanks and good morning. And uh, congratulations. Good morning, Mark. I'll just thank you as well. Um, so, so Jonathan, I heard your optimistic comments about the more troubled operators, such as gyms and restaurants. Can you maybe give some additional color on what extent will they be able to pay the, the prior level of rent as we exit this, these lockdowns, and do you expect some of the spaces will ultimately need to be released? Uh, Go ahead, Jonathan. Thanks, uh, thanks, Mark. Um, yeah, I, I think that uh, those categories, uh, movie theaters and restaurants, are going to see some disruption. Uh, movie theaters, um, I think that there will be, uh, a, let's say, a reduction in the amount of space required, but I do think the movie exhibition business uh, will continue to be um, part of the Canadian retail landscape. I think it'll be just uh, smaller. I think both the number of theaters that are out there will be reduced a little bit, and perhaps the size of some of those theaters will be reduced a little bit. But I do think that where there are theaters that are, are high-performing, they will continue to be high-performing in the future. Thankfully, a lot of ours are. And I think that uh, we will be able to maintain the rents, which we've already seen decline a little bit over time. So I think they're not at a, a high level to start with. But I do think some of those theaters will come back to us. And what I would say is, from reviewing every one of them, Mark, which we do constantly to ensure that we have contingency plans, depending on what happens to those theaters, um, the majority of them can be utilized for other things, be it uh, a redevelopment entirely or simply um, redefining the space as something else, be it retail or industrial. Um, but by and large, we do think that uh, the majority of our theaters will uh, continue to be in existence, and we don't, you know, we don't see significant rental pressure um, going forward on all of our locations, but some of them we certainly will. Um, 
And then with respect to restaurants, I mean, look, I think this pandemic has had a serious short-term impact on restaurants, but I don't believe that restaurants, particularly some of the ones that we're dealing with that have a larger balance sheet and I would say a fairly sizable infrastructure, um, like recipe foods, I really don't believe that their business model is going to be affected significantly in the long term. I do think the next year is going to be extremely tough for them, and I think there will be some banners that will that will lighten. But I do think that the trend towards eating out at restaurants will reinvigorate itself on the other end of this pandemic, and therefore demand will increase again, and there will be, again, I think, um, the opportunity, particularly in some of our very well-located properties, to increase rent over time. But again, the next year, that won't be the case because they're simply, uh, I mean, they're, they're, they are suffering quite tremendously. Okay, thanks. Maybe just one more question. Now, over the past number of years, Rio Canada has been extremely active in divesting assets, and obviously that took a pause. We saw over the past number of months some other retail retail properties. With interest rates where they are, there's understandable interest in well-leased assets. Should we expect a pickup in asset sales this year and maybe related? Uh, do we need things to stabilize more before you know, investors can have more confidence in what the real cap rates are and, and how asset values shake out? I think uh, you're going to you will see an uptick in uh, in uh, divestments this year and uh, recycling of capital, and uh, we're starting to see the uh, investment market slowly come back to life. Uh, it all depends on the on the uh, type of asset, uh, Mark. And uh, I think on uh, basically on your question, I'd answer. Stay tuned. Okay, thank you very much. Your next question comes from the line of Howard Lung from Veritech. Your line is open. Thanks. Uh, good morning. Um, I want any idea of the uh, amount of tenants or percentage of tenants uh, currently on the on the new uh, rent program. Uh, I, that's been relatively opaque, but let me turn the detail, uh, for, uh, if we have a detailed answer on that, uh, uh, to Jonathan. Thanks. Uh, yeah, it is, opaque is the right word on this one. Because the, the, um, the landlord involvement has been somewhat disintermediated, um, we don't have a clear sight other than anecdotal as to who's using it. As I suggested in my notes, there was, you know, we have set up an ambassador program, so we are being utilized as a resource for a lot of these tenants to help them with the application process, but we have not yet got a clear sense as to exactly who or how many of our tenants are utilizing it. My sense is, though, that as tenants become a little more comfortable with it and they recognize the benefit in it, there's going to be an uptick. And so, and because it is retroactive to October of 2020, we do believe that that is one of the elements that will actually improve still our 2020 and early 2021 rent collection numbers. But I can't answer your question with any uh, definition at this point. Um, but it, as I said, the number of tenants are increasing as months go on and as the process becomes a little less intimidating and a little easier for them to, uh, to reconcile. Uh, we find, we find uh, that a lot of our tenants are a little, uh, little more wary of dealing with the CRA than they were with the CMHC, with CMHC uh, under the uh, original uh, rent program. Uh, CRA tends to scare a lot of people. So I think that's been one of the reasons for the slow take-up. Right, right. No, no, I, I understand that. Um, I, I want to um, also turn to the renewals. Um, you know, it, the amount the amount of square feet renewed this quarter was, was pretty healthy. Um, spreads were a little light, I think, even compared to the past few quarters. Are you seeing kind of a maybe a trade-off there, um, at least in – in these in these past few months, as uh, the lockdown persists, that maybe you have to lighten the, the spread a bit in order to get more renewals. I, I think there's uh, there's an element of truth in that. Uh, I think uh, uh, you know we we always have uh, uh, two two goals in mind when we uh, uh, approach a renewal: keep the tenant and increase the rent. And uh, depending on what's going on in the world, uh, those two, you know. Uh, assume uh, relative importance. Right now, I think the importance is keeping the tenant, and uh, the tenant uh, has a bit of a stronger hand, 
particularly when he's not being allowed to operate, which is the case in some of these things, or when you're renewing empty office space that's not being used. Uh, so if uh, to the extent we've erred, uh, we've erred on the side of keeping the tenant. And uh, I think you'll see those spreads uh, as this pandemic hopefully comes to an end sooner rather than later. Uh, I think you'll see those spreads increase back to more normal uh, levels. And I can okay. add one no. thing to that. I, I can add one thing to that that well thought out answer, which is that when we are doing lighter than average renewals, we will keep the terms short because in, in recognition of the fact that this is not a, uh, a terminal. Uh, condition, right? I think that the conditions will improve. So we very, um, we very methodically worked with the tenants to really do shorter term renewals, and then we'll work with them uh, and have better growth in our view once the conditions do improve. Right, right. No, that that makes sense. Um, and then just maybe one final question on the on the um, credit ratings. Um, so you know, DBRS um, has put uh, put you on negative trend. Um, and you, how are the discussions with them going? And you know, should should there be you know a downgrade? Does that really impact your your um, strategy going forward, or you know, do you think that you can mitigate that? I think if uh, you know, I'll, I'll let uh, Chi add to my comments uh, if she wishes to. Uh, we're in constant contact with the uh, two rating agencies, uh, S&P and uh, and uh, DBRS. Uh, we found S&P is taking a bit of a longer term view uh, of this pandemic and. Uh, um, you know, so far, uh, obviously, there's been no activity from them. Um, keep in mind, DBRS had, a, had us rated one notch higher uh, than uh, S&P. We certainly don't want to be downgraded by anybody, uh, but we're very, very committed to keeping our investment grade uh, status. Uh, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think if, if the worst happens with DBRS, I'm not sure it would make that much difference right now. Hmm. No, Chief, you want to uh, answer that? Uh, no, I, I think you answered it very well. No, yeah. uh, keep, keep in mind uh, just, just one thing. I mean, we, you know, we've always run the ship, so to speak. Uh, and I don't want to make light of, of our credit rating because, believe me, we're without one eye on that credit rating uh, and wanting to keep our development uh, program going, we would not have even considered. Uh, reducing the uh, the distribution because certainly financially we can afford it, but uh, this is like but we didn't want to sell stock to raise equity and quite frankly reducing the distribution was the equivalent of doing a hundred and fifty odd million dollar equity deal, but quite frankly giving away stock at these prices in my opinion so this was the lesser evil um, and it was you know the, that's uh, credit ratings top of mind but we've always uh, run our balance sheet where unsecured debt is probably, well, I think it's about 40% right now, but it's certainly less than half uh, of our uh, 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 total debt. And um, the secured debt market is alive and well, and actually in many cases right now cheaper than the unsecured. So, you know, we, we always have options, lots of options. Mm -hmm. when, when, you're, when you're sitting with $8 billion plus of uh, unencumbered assets. For sure, and, and and the spreads, you know, I think between triple B high and triple B are not not that far. So, um, exactly, that's that's good to know. Um, so, thanks thanks again, um, and congrats again to uh, Ed and Jonathan, and I'll uh, pass the line. Thank you. Your next question comes from the line of Sam Damini from TD Securities. Your line is open. Thanks, and uh, good morning. Just firstly on the. Um, on the office tenant uh, departure, uh, was, I, I'm pretty sure that was a pre-COVID decision. Could you confirm that and also uh, clarify when, when the rent on that lease uh, stopped or, or will stop? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm going to turn that over to Jonathan. I, I'm pretty sure you're right. Uh, the, this particular, they were talking about consolidation like over a year ago, so it was a pre-COVID decision, uh, I think. And, uh, and I know your last name is Damiani. <laughs> Uh, hi, Sam. Uh, yeah, Ed is right. This was something that uh, has been in the works for a little while. Uh, we had pre-planned and, and started looking for tenants uh, quite some time ago. Obviously, the impact of the pandemic has made that, that search for new tenants a little more challenging. But, you know, given the nature of the space, we feel that over time we will get at least up, um, or at least the majority of it, but we did lose it pursuant to plans that were in place a while ago. And I believe the rent has already stopped. Okay, thank you. And next, next question, just on to leasing. Um, 
you know, the new leasing has, has come back uh, pretty nicely in, in the latter part of 2020. What is the pipeline looking like right now uh, for, for leasing, active leasing discussions, both on a new and renewal basis, and how would that compare to pre-pandemic levels? Jonathan? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so the pipeline's actually looking um, remarkably good relative to what I think the expectations are out there or the perceptions. I think Jeff and his team have done a remarkable job of pivoting to look at tenants that are a little bit more unconventional than what we're used to. And we've, because of that, we have actually, uh, particularly in our well-located major market centers, um, decent demand for space, and we're seeing uh, empty boxes that, that have arisen as a result of apparel tenants leaving um, backfill pretty quickly. And, you know, an example of that is, um, you know, we have a, a welcome center in Calgary in, in over 20,000 square feet of space that took an old furniture store uh, at a higher rent, which is effectively a government tenant that, that allows for new, uh, new residents in Calgary to come and visit this place to, you know, get, uh, I guess, just get a, a sense of what's available in Calgary to them. And um, it, it actually creates a great cross-shopping opportunity, and it's a good co-tenant. Um, and that's one example of many. There are healthcare uses that we're now uh, starting to see more of. And then the categories that are growing are the ones that you'd expect in this pandemic, and we continue to see that kind of growth, and we think it'll happen after. Those are a lot of the value-oriented retailers, um, which include grocery stores, of course, but also the likes of Dollarama and TJX banners. Um, and, uh, you know, we're seeing growth from all these different places. Uh, there's not enough talk about those, those uh, elements of the commercial landscape here. A lot of people are focusing on those that are shrinking their footprints, like apparel, um, which, you know, is understandable because people tend to focus on, on some of the negative aspects. But we are actually seeing some pretty good movement and pretty good demand out of, uh, out of some other categories. And finally, do, would you have a, like a specific outlook for in-place occupancy in Q1 or maybe even as far ahead as, as Q2 based on what you're seeing today? You know what? Uh, today is so unpredictable. Uh, I mean, you tell me, Sam, when the lockdown uh, will finish and when we can actually uh, start showing tenants uh, space uh, live. I mean, I, I think our, uh, our leasing guys have been remarkable in uh, uh, doing the amount of leasing and so on where you know, property tours are just not done uh, and travel uh, to go take a tenant through a property isn't done. So, you know, I think when, when uh, things go a little bit back to normal, uh, it'll be, it, it, you know, we'll be able to give you a solid answer to that. My feeling, and I'll welcome Jonathan's comments, it's, it's bottomed out. And, uh, and over the course of uh, 2021, it's going to get better. As far as I yeah, I would, I would concur with that entirely. Ed. I think that we did reach a trough in, in late 2020, and now, from based on the momentum we're seeing, it will uh, it will start to increase over each quarter this year. Yeah, people do see an end to this, Sam. I mean, it's it's an end that's sort of moving around with the rollout of the uh, vaccine being, you know, uh, to be complementary weak, um, and uh, but they know that sometime this year. Uh, you will you will get people out there and and uh, whatever passes for normal in the second half of 2021 we'll get there. So uh, you know QSR restaurants are signing up new deals for openings and uh, uh, there's lots of deals that are being done uh, and and will continue to be done where tenants look to well okay if I can open at the end of 21 or the beginning of 22 that's good and and there is starting to be that confidence out there. Thanks. Uh, I'll turn it back, but Ed, uh, congrats again, and looking forward to hopefully seeing you on BNN from time to time. Well, you'll see me on in about 40 minutes. <laughs> Your next question comes to the line of Tal Woolley from National Bank Financial. Your line is open. Hi. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Tal. Hey, Tal. Um, just on the tenant side, I'm wondering, you know, when you look at uh, sort of the vulnerable slice of your tenant role, um, you know, if these guys have made it this far, um, you know, do those tenants still, you know, when you're talking to them, feel committed, uh, you know, to continuing and how are they feeling about operating in a post uh, secret post SERS world? Yeah. Let me take the first shot at that. And Jonathan can add as he wishes. 
uh, you know, included in that uh, 22% of what we call potentially vulnerable as opposed to vulnerable uh, are, you know, some pretty big names, um, you know, uh, and, and uh, at the risk of insulting any of them, uh, that includes Cineplex, that includes all our gyms, Good Life LA Fitness, includes uh, uh, big chain bookstores. And in talking uh, to those tenants, which we constantly do, uh, yeah, they're 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 very committed to the post-pandemic uh, uh, future. Um, does that not mean, as Jonathan mentioned, uh, there may be less theaters uh, a year or two from now than there are today? Yeah, probably will be. We're expecting that. And in fact, in some cases uh, where we have redevelopment plans, we're encouraging that. Um, but um, you know, certainly gyms. Uh, I have no doubt that uh, once they're allowed to operate in even a relatively normal way, um, they, uh, they will be uh, uh, you know, back in business and, and uh, just the way it was before, essentially. Uh, Good Life, I know, is so committed to their uh, survival. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, they announced they, they had taken a large uh, a government uh, LEAF program loan, I think uh, in the neighborhood, if my recollection is correct, around in excess of $300 million. So that's how committed they are to getting through this thing, because if you remember the details of that, that, that's quite an intrusive program. Yeah, and, and so I'll just add a little bit to that, that uh, good answer, which is that we do speak to our tenants that we consider potentially vulnerable all the time, and this ranges from the larger ones, like Ed said, which are some of the gyms and bookstores and movie theaters, but also some of the mid-sized and smaller ones. And the response that we have received is exactly that. Hey, we've made it this far. We want to enjoy the other side of this. And I think there's a general sense, and I think they've gleaned this from also what's happening in the U.S., that there is going to be commercial exuberance in Canada once there is an ability to open up in a safe manner. And I, 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 the same way we are optimistic about the end of 2021, they too are optimistic and really don't want to miss out on this. And because they've weathered the storm so much, and granted, a lot of those storms were, um, were floated through on the backs of generosity of landlords and the government programs that are out there, um, however it's arisen, a lot of these tenants feel that there is a lot of upside uh, coming at the end of 2021 or hopefully in the middle of 2021. And that is certainly the feedback we've received from a number of them. And if you look at like some of your smaller tenants, um, you know, a lot of them have gotten, you know, sort of pushed into, you know, offering some sort of online e-commerce, click and collect kind of service that maybe they probably weren't offering before. I guess their tone changed about how, um, you know, they're thinking about the business, uh, their, their own businesses too. I, I, I think they all know that they, uh, they have to have more online capabilities. Uh, you know, I, using myself as an example, I can tell you at the beginning of the pandemic last spring, uh, I ordered some books uh, from Indigo. Um, that at the time they were using uh, the uh, Canada Post effectively for their delivery. It took almost, I think, about 10 days to get here. And uh, I ordered some books about, uh, well, at the beginning of this, uh, this week, and they took two days to get here. So clearly in their logistics, um, you know, Indigo has adapted. And uh, because, you know, a 10-day undeliver- uh, delivery time is unacceptable to anybody. Um, so, but does that mean they're giving up stores? No. Uh, you know, the, the people who love books love browsing in a bookstore. Uh, I'm, I'm one of them. And uh, while I'll order online when I have to, I far prefer to go to the, the store. And I think you'll see a lot of the uh, particularly smaller retailers, you know, uh, continue to build their, uh, their online presence. But the, the, uh, I think the model is the target uh, stores down in the United States, even though I hate using their name because of what they did to Canada, um, where they make the store the center of their uh, online business. And I think you'll find a lot of these smaller tenants uh, will be in exactly the same position. Uh, the ones that are going to succeed, they must have an online presence, uh, but they also uh, you know, have to have that bricks and mortar store. Uh, the take up in our curbside collect program that we started uh, really at pretty uh, you know, uh, early in the pandemic, I think is uh, increasing uh, by the week. Anyway, Jonathan, anything you wanna add? Yeah, I think that, I mean, there's a reason Shopify is doing so well. A lot of the tenants, big or small, are figuring out how to establish online presence. But as Ed said, I mean, what we're trying to do is help our tenants 
change or adapt because this uh, buy online, pick up in store, or click and collect model is taking on a lot of prominence and it's really much more efficient for these retailers to do it that way rather than delivering to one's front door. And delivering to one's front door is also not ideal for a consumer either. And this is the feedback we're getting from a host of our tenants who really do believe in the economic virtues of having these, what, what are really just fulfillment centers that have penetrated deep into neighborhoods. And so we do believe that there, you know, there's absolutely a need for these tenants to pick up their game when it comes to online, but they also recognize the need to make their, their stores more valuable and useful uh, in furtherance of getting consumer goods to consumers' homes. Okay. Um, <clears throat> on the balance sheet side, uh, the debt to EBITDA ratio is obviously uh, you know, above your longer-term target of eight, eight times. Um, you've got a fairly hefty uh, development spending commitment this year. You know, how, how should we expect to see that ratio kind of evolve over the course of 21 and 22? Obviously, it'll be you know, better by, the, you know, the, the further out we go. But I'm just wondering in the near-term quarters, like, should we be anticipating that ratio to probably rise through the first half of the year and then maybe start to come down after that? I, I think you may see a gentle rise of it, uh, and, and, and it will be gentle in the first quarter or two. Uh, I think it's going to uh, depend, and, and, you know, again, we're always uh, juggling a few balls, as I say, uh, on, uh, you know, how... Uh, quickly, we're able to move on uh, some of our disposition plans, uh, you know, as uh, we responded to Mark and uh, right at the beginning of the uh, question time. And uh, uh, but we're going, you know, we're going to have one eye on that. I, I don't think you'll see it move much in the first six months, but I definitely think that after we get uh, past mid-year, you'll start to see the uh, the ratio improve. Okay, and then just lastly on uh, the Hudson's Bay uh, JV. I, I can't, in 2000, I can't remember if it was 2014 or 15 when this deal got struck. I remember that you guys, you know, had a committed, you know, a capital commitment that they could, that the JV could call over time. You put some more money into that. Have you committed the full amount now? Yeah, it's it's 100% invested. Okay. Uh, there's no further call. Okay. And when do you anticipate? you know, the process of starting to rethink some of those urban flagships will begin? Well, I think uh, it, it, it has begun in some ways. I know uh, Hudson's Bay, which is taking the lead of it, uh, has been exploring the market, <clears throat> for example, specifically with uh, uh, Vancouver and Montreal. Um, they got to figure out, uh, which I know they are in the process of doing, and what they want their own footprint to look like in those properties on a go-forward basis, but the, um, you know, and they want the pandemic to be finished. So, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, quite frankly, <clears throat> I don't think you'll see anything happen until 2022 uh, or even a little later, uh, but I know there are constant discussions. I mean, the, <clears throat> the uh, property in Vancouver, uh, which is an incredible property, whether you look at it for, I mean, it's attached to Pacific Mall uh, from a retail perspective, uh, underground, and it's in the heart of the city. And, uh, you know, so whether you look at it from an office perspective, a residential perspective, or a retail perspective, it's, it's uh, got incredible value. And you can say the exact same about the one in Montreal. Calgary may take a little longer just because it's in Calgary. Uh, Ottawa, I think, may move uh, forward, uh, you know, fairly quickly, too. Uh, so, uh, but we're sort of in the hands of HBC. Keep in mind, we get paid a pretty good rent, and they're totally current on that, I might add, on the joint venture rents, uh, while we're waiting. And that pretty good rent, would you, do you feel that that's like, uh, you know, market, at market levels? Uh, it uh, may given, be. Given how the yeah. environment's changed? Yeah, uh, given how the environment changed, it's probably above market. Uh, but keeping in mind that Hudson's Bay is paying 80% of that rent to itself, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's really not a problem. Uh, like I say, uh, it's, it gets paid, and we're confident that it will get paid. And it gives us, uh, I think, uh, Jonathan, uh, pretty close to a 6% or about a 6% return right now on invested capital. While, while we're waiting for uh, some transactions to happen, which I have no doubt they will, Mr. Baker is a very clever, creative man. Okay, that's great. Thanks very much. Congratulations, Ed. Thank you. Bye, Sal.
Any further next, questions, Melissa? Yes. Your next question comes from the line of Pommy Beer from RBC Capital Markets. Your line is open. Hey, Pommy. Hey, hey. Hi, everyone. Uh, Ed, Jonathan, Chi. Um, just, uh, I'll, I'll try to be quick because I know we're uh, kind of hit the 60 minutes. Um, so last year was obviously more pronounced uh, in terms of bankruptcies and closures, um, but maybe just based on your discussions and I guess uh, an extension of some of the comments you made on the call, um, you know, what are your thoughts on how this year may shape up? Jonathan? Yeah, so um, last year we had, I mean, about 0.9% or under 1% of our income was affected by bankruptcies, stores that actually closed because of bankruptcies. Because remember, a lot of these are CCAA restructurings where, in fact, the leases are restructured and they subsist beyond the, uh, the, the CCAA filing. Um, and, and truthfully, usually in the normal course, we see a lot of fallout in January. Uh, and tr quite honestly, we didn't see really any uh, this January. And hopefully that's a sign of the fact that there's generally a little more health out there than, the, than perception would dictate. Um, but, you know, we're not, and we're not hearing any rumblings of additional filings. I mean, if you think about it, most of the weaker apparel tenants already did this, right? And then some of the other tenants that are in a perilous situation, again, they are getting help substantially by the government to bridge them through this. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think their uses are actually quite relevant in, uh, in a post-COVID society. So I, I don't see a huge number of bankruptcies coming, but again, it's, it's always unpredictable. You, you never know uh, how tenants are looking at the world. So, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a vague answer because it's a bit, bit of a vague concept, but uh, that's the sense we're getting. And, and as I said, usually it's January where these things happen. Got it. No, that's, that's a good caller. Thank you. Um, and just maybe lastly, coming back to the, the theater exposure, you know, you mentioned you're anticipating or planning for, I guess, less exposure over time. But, you know, how much of your exposure do you think may actually, you know, decline over the next, call it 12 to 24 months? Well, it declines, I mean, it has declined recently through dispositions, and we fully expect that over time, just through normal course redevelopments, dispositions, et cetera, it will decline a little more. And we're certainly, it's going to also be, you know, we're, we're not doing any more, I mean, I, I can't imagine there'll be any more growth in that, in that uh, part of our portfolio. Um, so I do think over time it will continue to decline, but it's going to be incremental. Okay. Um, that's it for me. Thanks very much, and, uh, and congratulations again on the retirement. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Your last question comes from the line of Dean Wilkinson from CIBC. Your line is open. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Ed, I timed this to be your very last question. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, if Tom Brady doesn't have to retire, I don't think you do, but that's an entirely different Yeah, I'm a couple of years older than him, but, uh, <laughs> but just as good looking, I think. Yeah, exactly. Um, as you look back on, on the 27 years, and, and thank you for the education, um, what do you think the biggest change in the business has been? And what does that mean for the next 27 years for Jonathan? And, and, and kind of what can we take from what you've seen and how the, the industry has, has kind of evolved over that time? Well, I think the, the, uh, the uh, biggest evolution over the years has been the concentration on uh, the major markets. I, I think we were first to figure that out, and, uh, but everybody else has figured that out. And uh, the second, uh, uh, you know, whereas... Uh, it used to be back in the first, uh, I'll call it five, six, seven years of, of this industry, well, you know, a dollar of Loblaw's income in uh, in Sault Ste. Marie was probably worth a dollar, uh, you know, it, it was the same kind of income as a dollar of Loblaw's income in Toronto. Uh, over time, everybody started to figure out that uh, that wasn't really the case. <laughs> because you were able to get better growth from your ancillary tenants. Uh, Loblaws was doing uh, more uh, sales per square foot in the major markets, and all of that related back to population growth. So you saw a, a movement uh, over the years to the major markets. Um, I think starting about seven, eight years ago, certainly in our case, maybe even longer, uh, everybody also started to realize that the biggest asset – uh, in these major markets that um, the uh, REITs uh, had was these large land holdings at critical um, locations. By definition, you built a shopping center 
at the intersection of two major streets so people could get in and out easily. And uh, guess what? That's where the cities are growing and tra because transit lines are being put on in those major streets. And everybody realized that to, to, uh, as the Internet grew in popularity, you really needed to <clears throat> create value from the assets you held. It means everybody had to go into development. Uh, when we first started doing development in, in uh, ways probably close to the beginning of this century, we were the only guys doing it. And uh, now I think everybody's doing that, uh, right from us to uh, Crombie. Maybe not CT REIT, but uh, you know those captive REITs are, are a little bit different. But mm -hmm. the um, uh, you know I, I think those are the biggest changes that uh, that the growth uh, is is important. Uh, 20, 20 years ago was, hey, you actually sent me a check this month. Thank you very much. Well, that's great. That's, uh, uh, and I can say, I think we're all looking forward to the post-COVID retirement party. So, um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> thanks, thanks, thanks for everything, and uh, uh, stay well. Okay, Dean, thank you. Uh, Melissa, I think that uh, marks the end of this conference call. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody who's still on uh, that uh, called in. Uh, and um, uh, I won't say I look forward to speaking to you next quarter because uh, you'll uh, you know, uh, get to hear from younger and smarter people than me uh, uh, <laughs> exclusively. Anyway, uh, thank you, guys. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Chi. Uh, thank you, Jennifer. And um, you know what? I guess uh, that's it. And uh, I'm sure Chi will be talking to many of you one-on-one uh, -on -one later in the day. And uh, for those who have any interest, I'll be on CNN in about 23 minutes. BNN. Uh, uh, BNN. Yeah, CNN, you know, they only got time for uh, the Senate. Um, <laughs> okay, everyone. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for participating in today's conference. This concludes today's program. You may all disconnect. Everyone have a great day. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.